Okay, you want to turn to Mark chapter 13 in your Bibles. We had some technical difficulties earlier. I apologize to those folks who are uh, online, but we have that straightened out, I think. Maybe, I hope so. Okay. It is a summer crowd. We have lots of folks away on vacation, and we had our mission trip uh, go off um, this past week and served in Fairmont, West Virginia, and several came back with the souvenirs of COVID. Um, so we have a group of them home today as well, uh, hopefully recovering, but please be in prayer uh, for those folks. And uh, before I forget... All the stuff you handed out, you're going to post online for all the people who aren't here. Okay, so we'll have some back here, but we'll make sure the other half of the church gets that too. Very good. Mark 13. So this is the seventh in a summer series on biblical priorities where we've chosen a number of verses that use the word first in them. And uh, so today is first proclaim. It's a little bit different than the others, but we'll see that as we go through it. Mark 13, I'm going to read verses 3 through 13. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son Jesus. We ask you this morning to enlighten our eyes that we might see the truth, then you would cause that truth to penetrate our hearts, that we would see what you desire for us to do and what you desire for us not to do. And we pray that we would move away from what displeases you and move towards what does please you. And so by your spirit, open this gospel to us, help us to see Jesus. And as always, for this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. 
Well, late last year, uh, Chapman University uh, released its annual survey on American fear. Now, if you think about the headlines over the last few years, in a global pandemic, major urban unrest across the nation, a contentious presidential election, claims of election fraud, the unprecedented storming of the Capitol, troop withdrawal from the terrorist haven of Afghanistan, government-enforced shutdowns, vaccine mandates, the war in Ukraine, and on and on. Who would be surprised to see fear on the rise across America? Chapman University's uh, research found that it's not the fact of fear, but the focal point of fear that shifts by political affiliation. For example, 30% of conservatives feared the outcome of the last presidential election, compared to 75% of liberals. Over half of Democrats are afraid of contracting COVID. A quarter of Republicans share that fear. 43% of Americans identify as conservative fear civil unrest, compared with 76% identifying as liberal. Of course, the left doesn't have a monopoly on fear. Fear crosses all the partisan lines because there's human beings across the political spectrum. And this bipartisan power of fear is evident, in fact, that the foremost fear in the United States for the sixth year in a row, this was amazing, is the fear of corrupt government officials. Would not have guessed that. It's a fear shared by Republicans, 85%, and Democrats, 78%. It is such a dominant fear that the next highest ranking fear is uh, people who I love dying. And that's 20 points lower. Now, there are some reasons, some are probably valid, some that are probably irrational, why the thought of corrupt government officials sparks so much fear, even more than the thought of losing a loved one. And part of this is we live in a time of great confusion. We live in a time of great fear because of all of the different things going on, particularly in the last few years. And for Christians, fear like this, caused by circumstances, should be met with a bigger perspective, that of biblical faith. And to shed light on our highly political moment, let's go back to the first century in the book of Acts. The book of Acts records 13 incidents of political corruption, usually with violent and even deadly implications. And of those 13 incidents, the examples of early Christians responding with fear or doom and gloom or political paranoia is precisely zero. However, of those 13 incidents, the examples of the early Christians responding with boldness, publicly proclaiming the good news of Jesus, loving their neighbors, and refusing to back down in the face of political threats, sometimes even death threats, is precisely 13. Think about it. That sh should not surprise us. The early church in the first century lived in a time of great confusion and great fear, just like us. They were persecuted, they were scattered, they were tested in a variety of ways, and they're trying to understand the scriptures. 
And they weren't sure if the end times, or the last days, as Jesus called them, was something that was going to happen right away, or not for a long time. And things became so difficult for them, they looked with great anticipation to Jesus' return. Now, part of the problem, both then and now, is that Jesus spoke of the end times a great deal. And for the past 2,000 years, we haven't been able to agree on exactly what he meant. Is he coming back to establish his reign on earth? Is he waiting until everyone is saved first? Or are we actually living under his reign right now? Are we getting to leave this place before the real suffering starts? Will we leave in the middle of the suffering? Or is the suffering part and parcel of what Christians have to live with? Will the suffering be specifically targeted towards Christians, or is it going to hit everybody else, or is it really a both-and situation? There's lots and lots of questions. Not a lot of real clear answers. At least not a lot of answers that everybody agrees on. So not only are we living in a time of great confusion, this morning we're taking on a subject of great confusion. And yet God put this text here for a reason, and it's supposed to have some effect on what we believe and how we live. So let's go back to Mark 13 and see what's going on. Today we come to what is actually the longest of Jesus' sermons that Mark records. He has other longer sermons, but they're in other Gospels. And the teaching in this sermon refers to events that would transpire shortly after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. But it also refers to events that still await fulfillment, including the second coming of Christ. And so while this passage is prophetic, it also has near-term fulfillment and far-term fulfillment. It speaks of the end times, or to use the technical term, eschatology, which means the study of the end times. Now, when you mention the word eschatology, that stirs interesting reactions from otherwise intelligent people. Some immediately think of the rather bizarre literature that's available on the subject of the end times, and maybe you've read some of that. Or perhaps when you think of end times or eschatology, you think of the fact that there are many faithful teachers of God's word who have differences on how all this is going to work out and Perhaps you're thinking if the theologians can't figure it out, then maybe we're just better off not talking about it at all. However, that would be a big mistake for a bunch of reasons. First of all, a significant portion of the New Testament is taken up with teaching on the end times. Jesus, the Apostle Paul, the other apostles, all addressed issues connected with prophecy and the end times. Secondly, the lion's share of teaching in the New Testament about the end times is in fact crystal clear. The vast majority of New Testament teaching on the end times about the way the Lord is going to return is plain and simple. And finally, teaching about the end times is directly connected to Christian ethics, or to put it another way, the Bible's teaching about the end times is directly related to the daily life of the Christian. Our understanding of what the New Testament teaches about the end times is actually very important for living the Christian life. So we're going to look at this text by looking at the response Jesus expects from us. 
in the midst of all this teaching on the end times, he very subtly inserts some commands and instructions. And the first one that we see is do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, verses 3 through 8. And there again he says, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So Jesus has been in the temple, where he's been answering questions and teaching the people. And as him and his disciples are leaving, they're heading for the Mount of Olives, which is just across this little valley and up a hill, right next to the temple. And when you're on the top of the Mount of Olives, you actually look down on the temple. And as they're going there, the disciples turn around and look at this magnificent temple. Now, the temple at that time is considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. And even though they've all seen the temple many, many times before, they're still amazed by it. And they basically express as much to Jesus. You think of it, the temple consists of huge stones. The building blocks for the temple are enormous. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us some of the stones that made up the temple were 60 feet long, 11 feet high, and 8 feet deep, with each stone weighing as much as a million pounds. That's pretty big. So Mark begins, Mark 13 begins with Jesus telling his disciples that Jerusalem and the temple at some future time are going to be destroyed. And you can imagine, they're all like, what? How can that be? It's so big, it's so amazing. And so in verse 4, they ask the question, when will these things be? What will be the sign these things are about to be accomplished. And because they ask, Jesus begins to teach. And he says, the end of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple is actually a foreshadowing of the end of the world. It's a foreshadowing of Judgment Day. It's a foreshadowing of his second coming. But if they, and us, are going to be ready for the end times, Jesus tells us that we need to be careful. We have to be aware, we have to beware of false teachers. That's how he begins his response to this, uh, this uh, time of teaching. Verse 5, Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. He's alerting the disciples that the topic of future things is going to be filled with widespread deception. In what way? He goes on, verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So the first sign of the impending fulfillment of end times prophecy is the appearance of false teachers. This definitely has a first century near time uh, fulfillment. Historians tell us there were many false teachers 
false messiahs that appeared before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Josephus documents uh, these people who claim to be the returning Christ. And yet we know that one of the Apostle Paul's major concerns in all of his letters uh, written to the early church is taking on false teachers. He talks about it again and again and again. And there's no shortage of false, false teachers in our day and age. So Jesus' warning, again, has a near-term fulfillment and a far-term fulfillment. But things get even a little more difficult because the next thing we are to be aware of or to beware of are false signs, false teachers, false signs. Starting at verse 7, it says, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. The disciples listening to Jesus must have understood wars and rumors of wars as indication of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple at the hands of the Romans, which happened in 70 AD. No doubt the disciples paid close attention as various conflicts flared up. But Jesus is counseling them. He says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. He also lists earthquakes and famines. Now the signs themselves are not false, but our reaction or overreaction to them are what's false. And that's because history tells us in the lifetime of most of the disciples, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines all took place. Again, near-term fulfillment of all these things. But any search of the news, any understanding of history, will tell you those things didn't end in the first century. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines have continued in every generation. In fact, they've only increased in intensity and severity. The intensity of some of these things today is due to the increase in global population. But some of the severity of these things is due to the commercialism and capitalism of living in a global economy that puts cities on fault lines, that's moved food and distribution from being a local matter to being a global network, and that's why a famine in Argentina affects food prices in Virginia. We need great discernment today to understand how worldwide events and disasters affect us, not just materially, but also spiritually. Now, there's a lot of people, lots of evangelicals too, today have a tendency every time a new conflict breaks out, and there's always a conflict. You can look it up. There's been seven years in recorded human history without a conflict. Seven. Over about 5,000 years of recorded history. And none of those seven have happened in any of your lifetimes. So there's always a conflict somewhere in any of our lifetimes. You have to go back into the 1800s to find a year without a recorded conflict, and I don't think any of you are that old. Some of you may feel that old, but you're not actually that old. And, but still, every time somebody will say, oh, it's the end times, there's another conflict. 
or an earthquake or a famine or any natural disaster. And the reason that gets so many people's attention is because of what did not happen in the first century or any century since. And that's Jesus coming back. And so we're still looking, we're still waiting. And as Jesus continues here, he goes from sort of the big picture to a more personal level. Not intended for everyone, but particular for Christians. He begins to tell his disciples about things that would happen to them and how they should respond. He doesn't want them to be deceived by false teachers or false signs or false interpretations of those signs, but he knows the wait will be long. And so he tells us, do not be discouraged. Do not be discouraged. Do not be deceived. Do not be discouraged. Starting at verse 9. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now all of that reads like an overview of the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, uh, as Luke recounts the spread of the gospel in the first century, he tells us that the apostles repeatedly were subjected to persecution. For the early church, persecution came first from the Jewish authorities and then later from the power of Rome. Indeed, they were taken before councils such as Peter and John were questioned by the Sanhedrin in Acts 4. They were beaten in synagogues in Acts 22. Paul himself confessed that he beat believers uh, before his conversion. They're brought before rulers and kings, just as when Paul stood before King Agrippa in Acts 26. So there's near-term fulfillment. But you also know that nearly every year we have a Pray for the Persecuted Church Sunday. And if all this happened 2,000 years ago, why are we still doing that? Because the persecution of Christians has never been more widespread. It's still ongoing. It continues around the world. In the last few years, it's probably been more intense in China as churches in that land have been destroyed and pastors imprisoned. But it's happening in a, a huge list of countries. Of course, we shouldn't again be surprised by it. The Apostle Peter gives us the admonition in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In the Gospel of John, Jesus himself warns us about this, John 15. This comes right after the branch and the vine passage. And he says, if the world hates you, know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now it's been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. There is a great deal of truth to that. For where believers had stood firm against opposition to the gospel, the church has flourished. The church is often strongest in places where it is the most threatened. However, it's also true throughout church history, not all professing Christians uh, who come under persecution go to their death singing hymns. Some, uh, there were those who they caved, they betrayed their profession of faith. Some betrayed parents, friends, brothers, sisters to save their own neck. Simply put, there's those who betrayed the faith in the first century, just as Jesus warned there would be, and it's no different today. My own view for what it's worth is this seems to be signaling that prior to the return of Jesus, there will be a great apostasy, a turning away from Christ and his gospel, as there will be at times of great trial and tribulation and suffering. I certainly believe we uh, ought to live our lives not so much with that any moment mentality of Jesus' return, but certainly with a confident, a sure and certain expectation that there will be a return of Jesus. Perhaps within our lifetime, perhaps not. It could come very quickly. It could come a long time from now. And because we're not sure, we don't tend to live our lives with the return of Jesus in mind. I don't know how much the second coming of Christ is part of our everyday thinking. But in the Bible, it is a dominant feature of how the early Christians lived. They lived with the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, the death of Christ on the cross, and the second coming of Christ on the clouds of heaven in their minds. Birth, death, resurrection, ascension, return of Christ form the perspective by which they lived every day. And this text is telling us we need to live the same way. After all, the second coming is a crucial part of the teaching of Christianity. Think about it. Not only is it in the Apostles' Creed, he will come to judge the living and the dead. It's mentioned 300 times in the New Testament. That's one out of every 13 verses. Jesus mentions it over and over and over again. And I want to go as far to say as you can't live a recognizably Christian life unless you not only believe this, but you let it affect how you live. And we're going to get to that because Jesus' next command is do not be distressed. Look at this. You know, there was once an influential minister of the gospel, an old Irish Puritan preacher by the name of Alan Flavel. He once said, and this has been modernized, but it says, we get all anxious and run to God when the foundations are shaking, only to find that he is the one shaking them. Do you ever feel like the foundations are shaking? I mean, just turn on the news. Look up your favorite news website. What do you see? Wars and rumors of wars, earthquake, famine, signs of judgment, signs of God having given up a people to unrighteousness. So what do we do? How do we respond? The answers to that questions are right here in our text. In a sense, they're hidden in plain sight. It's important that we do not be led astray. 
We find that in verses 5 and 6. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Later on in verse 22, it says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. The great danger is that someone or something will lead you away from Christ. Like much of what we see in Paul's letters, the great danger to the early church, the great danger to the church today, are false teachers. And unless you know the scriptures, it's hard to know what teachings are true or false. That's why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So do not be led astray. Second, he tells us, do not be alarmed or anxious. Find that in verses 7 and verse 11. Now, I've talked about anxiety several times uh, in the last few months and great fear. And yet Jesus has told us what's going to happen. He has told us how it's going to end. The most common command in all of the scriptures is do not fear. And that's given to us because Christ has promised never to leave us or forsake us. And I don't want to downplay the physical or psychological elements of anxiety, but I want to emphasize there's also a spiritual component involved here as well. And far too often people deal with just the physical or just the psychological while ignoring the spiritual. And I'm kind of an all of the above uh, whole person thing. I think you need to deal with all of them. But if you're suffering from fear, great fear or anxiety, especially in these days of fear and confusion, have you turned to the means of grace to help you handle it? And I know that sounds way too simple. But spending real time in prayer, spending real time in the word, real time in worship, real time fellowshipping with other believers can go a long way to not letting fear and anxiety get the best of you. So now we move on to what's actually the most important question and the most important response in the text. Now what? What else? What's the last thing we do here? Because the most important thing Jesus tells us is to proclaim the gospel. First, we see in verse 9, five more times in this chapter, he says, be on guard, stay awake. We're to guard against the pressure that's put on us by persecution, to guard against false teachers, to guard against thinking that the coming of Christ doesn't matter or that it's the only thing that matters. We're to guard against others being led astray by sin, by false teaching, by idolatry, by immorality, by the lack of care and compassion. Most of all, we're to guard the gospel from all these things. We have to guard the work of Christ that's already been done in our lives. That's part of perseverance. Again, it's why Paul tells Timothy uh, in 2 Timothy 1, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I think it was the Reformed theologian A.B. Kuyper who said that the condition of the world is getting better and worse at the same time. The gospel is spreading, the church is growing. There are more Christians in the world today than ever before. But at the same time, there's more opposition, there's more hostility, and there's more difficulty. Everything's getting better and getting worse at the same time. 
And not only are we we are to guard the gospel in the face of persecution, like the early church, in the face of that persecution, we are being called to proclaim the gospel. Verse 10 of our passage, really the theme verse for this whole sermon, says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Essentially, we're to be about the business of evangelism. Now, our English word evangelism simply means to proclaim good news. And that's what's being described when the word is used in scripture. Someone's proclaiming the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. But it's not actually the word used here in Mark 13, 10. Because here the word used is charax, which simply means preaching. The Apostle Paul uses it to remind Timothy that his priority as a pastor was the proclamation of God's word to God's people in the setting of corporate worship. 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearance and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We proclaim the good news because there are false teachers, because there are people who are being deceived and being led astray, who will not endure sound teaching, who turn away from the truth and wander off into myths, who overreact to false signs and become alarmed, and fear and anxiety will become or have become the defining emotion of our day. And what people need is exactly what we have to offer. They need Jesus. And so we proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus' teaching and the example of the apostles lead us to conclude that the good news is so great it should be proclaimed with a desire to persuade. That's what the Apostle Paul did, Acts 18.4. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And that's what he tells us to do in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, the Bible never hints that the herald, the preacher, the proclaimer is the persuader. Persuasion is only possible when the Holy Spirit removes a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36. Or opens your heart to receive the free offer of grace, as he did with Lydia in Acts 16. It says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That means the believer's responsibility is not just to proclaim the gospel, and not just to persuade others of its truth, but to pray for its effectiveness as the Holy Spirit applies uh, that truth to the heart. So how are we to pray for that? Well, we can pray for more people to proclaim the gospel. We can pray for more opportunities to proclaim the gospel. We can pray for the courage to persist in proclaiming the gospel against 
uh, opposition, against persecution, and against deception. All of which emphasizes that the gospel's power comes from God. It comes from the Holy Spirit who empowers its ambassadors. That's us, Acts 1.8. Who through the foolishness of proclamation have the privilege of unleashing a message that conquers unbelief. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, what we proclaim, to save those who believe. The Christian faith can withstand whatever question or attack is brought against it because of the truth of the gospel. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, it's able to penetrate the heart, persuade the mind, and change the life of any unbeliever. And out of love, we must not back down from any challenges. But with gentleness and kindness, and that's important, we are to proclaim the gospel. And out of confidence in the sovereign grace of God, persuade them of the truth of the resurrection. The resurrection is the checkmate to all idols and ideologies contesting Christianity. And then we have to pray that the Spirit would bring in a harvest of souls which will resound, Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. We are not to be deceived, but we are to proclaim. We're not to be discouraged, but we are to persuade. And we're not to be distressed, but we are to pray. And then God does the work. God changes the hearts, and God brings in the harvest. And that's what we'll see in the end times. And our passage ends with, and the one who endures to the end will be saved. Think about that. You need to pray for these things now. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Help us to repent and believe the gospel. Father, we thank you that you have made us to be ambassadors of Christ. We long for the fulfillment of your great and precious promises. We know that our redemption is drawing near every day. We commit our lives to the proclamation of your gospel to all nations through the church. We ask that you would keep us from every false teaching and rebellion against your word before the return of your son. We know that in you we will be held safe until that day, for your elect will not be led astray to eternal destruction. Your son will come, and we will wait for him as we hear your word. Help us to be on guard and to stay awake for the sure and certain hope of eternal life in Christ, because we believe, as always, that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And by faith, we live for that day to come. Amen and amen.